Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Scootybarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Scootybarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. All right, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. Uh, I want to uh, preach today out of a text of, uh, of Scripture that is a continuation of the story of Samson that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. But I want to tell you that this was a source of consternation and frustration for me this week because it is so confusing. And, and literally, I was praying, Lord, I don't know what to say about this. I don't know what the point is because it's this, it's this paradox. It's this, this story of of a person who was anointed by God from before birth to deliver his people, Israel, and, and to, to, to judge the Philistines, and yet you would expect God to use a righteous man. You would expect God to use someone who was holy and someone who had a heart after God. And what we find, beginning in 14, is that we're, we're, God is using a person who doesn't deserve to be used. And I'm just going to put it right out there. He's, he's, he's this guy who is listed in Hebrews 11. We call that the hall of faith, right? And, and the scripture says that, and I'm not even going to mention the faith of uh, Samson and all of these people. And Samson's in that list. And so he was, he was listed as a person of faith. And yet the life that we see in scripture is a contradiction of that. And I don't know about you, but that, that doesn't set well with me. Because I want the people that are teaching God's word to be righteous and holy. And I want the people who are leading me towards Christ to be, uh, to be men who, and women who are worthy of following. And yet, that doesn't seem to be the case here. And so as I wrestled with this text this week, here was the overarching theme. I was once again reminded that this is not the story of Samson. This is the story of God. This is God's character, and it's God's nature. It's who God is. And as we know who God is, we're reminded who we really are. Now, you have a choice, though. You can live a life that is unholy and still be used by God should he choose to use you. Or you could live a life that is holy, and you could still be used by God should he choose to, Yet the legacy you leave and the amount that God uses you will be decidedly different. Let's get into the text. Judges chapter 14. This is the first words that we hear that Samson says. Samson went down to Tenma and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and mother, I've seen a young Philistine woman in Timna. Now get her for me as a wife. So the very first thing we see is the, the ultimate downfall of Samson. Now in 1 John chapter 2, the scripture tells us that there are three things that, that a person has to wrestle with and deals with. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of his possessions or the pride of life. These three are common to every one of us in this room. 
There's the lust. Now, lust, the word lust in the Greek is epithumia. It means it's a strong desire, this overwhelming, almost carnivorous desire, right? And so the lust of the flesh, what, what the flesh wants, those are those bodily desires. It's the lust of the eyes, what we see that looks so shiny and beautiful to us that we want it. And then there's the pride of our possessions or the, the hey, look what I've got. Look what I have. Look what I've done, right? So those are the three things that you will deal with. They're the three things that I will deal with, and that will never go away. But you also, and I also don't have to succumb to them either. So what the Scripture tells us is that Samson went down and saw this young Philistine hottie. That's basically the Hebrew translation. She was hot, right? Um, and he said to his parents, I've seen this young Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as a wife. He saw something he liked, and he went after it. Now, here's the funny thing. In our culture, this would be considered like a stud, right? I see what I like, I'm going to go after it, right? And now that's not necessarily the right way to think, but I'm saying he would have been praised by our culture, but what he was doing was going outside of the bounds of who he was created to be. Listen. He was created by God to be a deliverer, to be a judge. And we know that because the previous chapter tells us that when Manoah, the father, and his wife, the mother, were told that they were going to have a son, they were given explicit instructions to raise that son in the Lord as a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite was one who is set apart for God. And normally, being set apart was something that a person would choose for themselves. They would say, I'm going to become a Nazarite, and that was for a period of time. It typically was not a lifelong uh, uh, vow. It was uh, usually 30 days, but it could be up to 100 days or so. And there were three things, according to number seven, that a Nazarite was to do. Three things that set them apart. Number one, they would not partake of anything of the vine or strong drink. And so the idea behind that was that wine brings joy and makes people merry. And so uh, a Nazarite wasn't to get their joy from the vine. They were to get their joy from the Lord. So that was kind of the meaning behind that. Um, the, the second thing was they were not to shave their head. They weren't to cut their, head, their hair at all. They were just to let it grow. And so the third thing was that they were not to touch anything dead. Those were the three, rec the three um, uh, commands for a Nazarite. What we'll see is that even though God said to Samson's parents, you were to raise him in as a Nazarite since before he was born, that's his calling, that's his purpose. And even though, as far as we know, they raised him this way, so certainly they would not have hidden this from him. They would have told him because God said, look, if an angel comes and tells me, I want you to raise your son like this, I'm just telling you I'm going to do that, right? There's a little bit of fear involved there. So he was raised the right way, at least presumably, and yet he sees this woman and says, go get her for a wife, and the mother and father remind him that this is not the right thing to do. And they remind him by saying, can't you find, this is verse 3, can't you find a young woman among our relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? They were reminding him of what God commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was, don't, or 6 and 7, don't go outside of your own people to marry. Do not intermarry. An Israelite is only to marry an Israelite. Now, a little side note here. 
most of us in this room are too young to remember this. But it used to be that the church, I say the church, that uh, one of the things that, that preachers used to say and Christians used to use as, as their uh, proof text for their belief is, is this whole idea of not marrying outside of your own people. So they would say, you can't marry somebody who's black if you're white. Or you can't marry somebody who's white if you're black. And they used to use the Bible to, to, to defend that argument. Folks, that was a complete misrepresentation of the text. That is not what the Bible says. Amen? That's not, it, it, it's, it's unfortunately, uh, and, I, and I think it's kind of an overall point of this passage, God even uses broken people to do his work. This text was about not marrying somebody who wasn't an Israelite because, and he explicitly says it in the scripture, if you do, you'll also marry into their gods and they will pull you away from knowing me and you will worship false gods, which is idolatry, breaking the first of the four commandments, right? So that was the reason behind it. Unfortunately, sometimes people miss the text and they, 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 they use a verse out of context to prove what they only want to prove. Amen? We get that, right? So that's a warning to you. Don't take a verse out of context to prove your point because it doesn't make your point right. It just makes you a violator of the text. All right, so that's a whole other side sermon. That was free, by the way. You don't have to charge, pay anything extra for that. So his parents say, you can't do this. You're only supposed to marry of your own people. In the very last part of that verse, verse 3, it says, But Samson told her, go get her for me. She is the right one for me. He told his parents, no, I want her. I like her. Go get her. Think of the audacity. Think of the heart of this guy to be able to even disrespect and dishonor his parents in this way. Now, in these days, marriages were arranged. They're actually still arranged today in other parts of the country. If you go to India, many, many marriages are arranged. A lot of the part in, in the eastern part of our world are arranged. I was asking Saga one time while we were in India. I don't, don't know if you remember this conversation, but I said, so how does that work? Like, like what if you get stuck with someone ugly, Right? Matter of fact, is that where the veil came from? That when you got there, you were like, oh, no, take her back, right? I mean, and, and, and I was like, well, it could go both ways. She could be like, oh, no, take him back. He's ugly, right? I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? And the, the explanation was this. Our parents know us better than we know ourselves, and so we yield to them and we trust them to put us in a right relationship. And the beautiful thing about it is we choose to learn to love each other. It is a commitment that they make, and they make it work. Is that fair enough? And, and that's foreign to me, because I want to marry who I love, right? I mean, I did. I'm, I'm grateful that she said yes. But the fact is, in the culture, it, was, it would have been very dishonoring to not let the parents choose the spouse. It was backwards. He was directing the shots. And yet his parents said, okay, we'll do it. Verse 4, though, gives us an inclination of what's going on here. Now, his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord, who wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for confrontation. At that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. So here's what was happening. God was going to use the situation for his own glory. Now, here's where we have a little bit of confusion. Did God... Make him marry a Philistine woman? Or did God simply work through the brokenness of Samson 
and Samson's disobedience to turn it around to something that glorifies God. I would have to say the second, not the first. How do I know that? Because I don't think God ever goes against his own word. If he did, he'd be a liar. And we know that God specifically commanded, don't marry outside of your own people. And yet Samson marries outside of his own people, and yet God is somehow able to make straight licks with crooked sticks. I love that phrase there. Listen, this is the overarching theme of the passage. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you. You can be a bald-faced, sinful person, and God can still use you to preach the gospel and win people to Jesus. This text is especially important today because in the last couple of weeks, there was a movie that came out called Jesus Revolution. How many of y'all saw it? Okay, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you go spend eight bucks for the manatee, uh, manatee, manatee not manatee, the matinee. Manatee would be fun too. <laughs> I'm watching a movie on a manatee. Go, go watch the movie at the big screen. The movie Jesus Revolution is about the... Um, the move of God back in the early 70s when the hippies were, were, were searching for Jesus but didn't know where to find him, basically. And this whole thing out of California, with, uh, um, uh, the, which ultimately became Calvary Chapel. Anyways, it's a long, long story, great story, but here's the point. The, the, the instigator of that thing outside of God was a guy by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee was a hippie extraordinaire, and God used him to bring about this movement. And he actually had to leave the movement because there was a conflict between him and uh, Chuck Smith, who was the, the pastor of the church. And if you follow the story, Lonnie was in and out, in and out, and he had a, a sketchy life, so to speak. He actually died of AIDS because many say that he engaged in activity on Saturday night, and then preach the gospel on Sunday morning. You can go back and look at the history of that. But here's the point. How did God start a worldwide movement amongst a bunch of hippies using a guy who partied on Saturday and preached on Sunday? Can you reconcile that? Because I can't. In my own mind, I just cannot wrap my head around that. Because in my own self-righteousness... God uses the righteous. And yet, God brings me to this passage this week and says, well, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he uses who he uses, however he uses, and it's up to his sovereign, perfect will to do as he pleases. Now, some might say, well, how could God do that? How is that fair of God? Well, who am I to question God's fairness? And you might say, well, well how can... How, how can we trust a God who uses things like that? Well, think about it. Aren't all of us broken? Don't all of us have issues that, that, that are not right and yet God still uses? I mean, listen, if you preach, if you're a pastor or if you preach regularly, you're going to preach being not right with God at some point in your life. Probably far more than you'll ever want to. You're going to share the gospel if you're just a, just a regular business. You're going to share the gospel times when you just made a rotten deal and you sinned against God. And then he's going to put somebody before you that you're going to talk about the truth of, of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. And it's going to be eating at you and gnawing at you that you're going to be going, I am such a hypocrite talking about this. And yet God says, yes, you are, but that's why my grace is sufficient because I choose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. That's just the way God does it. 
in this story, that's exactly what God is doing with Samson. And so Samson, verse 5, went down to Timnah with his father and mother. And he, the old, but wait, there's more, right? I mean, we've only started to see his character. He went down uh, with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Tim, Timnah. Suddenly a young lion came roaring at him, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn apart a young goat. So what's happening here? First off, him and his parents are walking down to Timnah to get this woman that he wants as his wife, and somehow or another he veers off the trail and finds himself in a vineyard. Now, what's the first problem here? It's a vineyard. What do you grow in a vineyard? Grapes. What is the first thing a Nazarite cannot do? Have anything to do with grapes, right? Nothing that has to do with the fruit of the vine. And yet he's in the vineyard walking around. Now, we don't know if he was tasting the grapes or, you know, popping grapes. We don't know if he was testing the wine. But what we do know is he was flirting with sin. He was, he was at least flirting with sin. Some of the commentators I read said that this lion was a way of God getting his attention, saying, hey, you need to be careful because you're in a place that's about to lead you into sin. And yet, even in this story, that warning, if it were, led to more sin, right? So this, this uh, lion jumps out, this young lion, and the way the scripture says in the Hebrew is this, it's that the lion tried to overtake uh, Samson, and yet the Spirit of God overtook Samson. So the sin was there, the, 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 the temptation was there, but the Spirit of God superseded that. Here's what you can know. You will always have a way out every single time. The Bible tells us that we are not tempted in such a way that we don't have a way out. We are tempted, and God gives us this warning over and over and over. And if we'll, we'll allow him, we can have the escape. But that's not the main point here. The main point here is this. He found himself in a vineyard. A lion jumped out. He ripped the lion apart like he would do to a young goat. And look, that would be... A young goat would be very tender and small. Forgive the graphic nature, but you can blame God. It's in the Bible, right? He would have, with the young goat, you can grab the back legs and you can literally just rip it apart this way because of how, how, how they're, they're, they're together, right? You can just go. He did that with a lion, and the next part of the verse says, but he did not tell his parents. I'm telling you, folks, if you ever find me ripping a lion apart with my bare, bare hands, I am going to selfie that. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all over Facebook. I'm going to even get TikTok and tell people, did you see this? He didn't tell a soul. Why don't you think he told a soul? Why didn't he tell his parents? Could it be that he knew he was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing? And by the way, since he killed a lion, now he has touched a dead body. He, in this, in this one part of the story, has violated two of the three. There's a truth about sin. Sin will captivate you. It will deceive you. And then it will destroy you. Every time. Every single time. Is that true in your own life? It's absolutely true. He tears this lion apart. He did not tell his father and mother. 
And then verse 7, he went and spoke to the woman because she seemed right to Samson. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The Bible tells us, trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, right? The Bible tells us that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. The idea is we can trust in our own wisdom or we can trust in the wisdom of God. In whom do you trust? Are you using your own wisdom or are you using the wisdom of God? The choice really is yours. So verse 8, after some time when he returned to marry her, he left the road to see the lion's carcass. So here's what's happening. So Samson and his mom and dad went down to Timnah to make a deal with the dad. Hey, my son, your daughter, let's hitch him, okay? They apparently agreed, and so they went back to their hometown, and then they were on their way back to Timnah to have a seven-day feast. Now, that seven-day feast was really, uh, it, it it was a drinking party is what it was. They would drink for seven days, and on the seventh day, the marriage would be consummated. That was the way it worked. And as they were on their way back to have this feast, Samson decides to return to the lion. Makes me ask the question, why? What was his reasoning to go back? I mean, it obviously wasn't on the road, because if it was, then his parents would have seen it in the first place, right? He goes back to the lion, which was in the vineyard, or at least we presume it was in the vineyard, because that's where he was where the lion came out, right? And then he sees that some bees created a honeycomb inside of a carcass, and he reaches down and scoops the honey and eats it. Touching the dead body in a vineyard. Man, this guy has got serious issues. I mean, he has got problem after problem after problem. Then he brings it back to the road and he says, Mom and Dad, here's some honey. You want some? They're like, oh, this is great honey. And he doesn't tell them where it came from. I think that he had a conscience going on. Well, We don't know this for certain, but I think that he knew he was in the wrong. And yet... He also knew that God had called him, and so he was walking that fine line of of, um, uh, 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 the grace of God and doing what I want to do. Here's what we do know. You can abuse the grace of God, but if you do, there will be a price to pay. Romans 6 tells us this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who have died to sin continue any longer in it? The argument in Romans is, look, if I'm forgiven, I'll just do what I want. Because I've got my get out of hell free card. I've got my I've been forgiven card. Here's the problem. The nature of God's discipline for you and for me is different when it comes to rebelliously sinning and sinning Uh, because of the weakness of the flesh. There is a huge difference in the heart of the matter. As a father, whenever my kid said, hey, I I messed up, I just, I wanted it. Cookie jar, right? The cookies were calling my name. I'm like, I I don't blame you, kid. I know I told you no. I'm going to punish you for it, but, but I get it. You know, cookies call my name too, more than I want them to, right? There's a difference in that and I'm going to eat a cookie whether you like it or not, right? That's where you check your teeth off the floor, right? I mean, I'm not advocating hurting a child. I'm just saying 
there is a serious difference in discipline, is there not, between defiant, willful defiance and, man, I'm just weak? You think God is any less of a father than you would be? It's a scary thing when we defy God, put our chin up there, put our chest out. Who do you think you are? Do you not remember that back in Genesis chapter 11, there was a tower that reached to the heavens, and God went and flicked it with his fingers, and scattered the people all over the nation, all over the earth? Do you not remember the time when God opened up the earth and swallowed 10,000 people? Do you not remember that when he sent a swarm of uh, a plague of locusts? I mean, God, the Bible says to fear the Lord's being of all knowledge. There's a reason for that. We cannot spur, we cannot defy God in such a way and expect that he's just going to go, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. We just can never get to that point. It seems as though Samson did that. It seems as though he knew what he should be doing, and yet he chose to do the opposite. He grabbed the honey, he brought it, and he gave it to his parents. Oops. And then, verse 10, his father went to visit the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. So his father went to see the woman and do, do the, the business deal with the family. Meanwhile, Samson began to prepare the feast, and there were 30. Philistines that came to help him with the feast because he didn't bring a best man, apparently. And while they were setting up the feast, Samson decides to throw out a riddle. He said, hey, hey, boys, tell you what. How about I'll throw out a riddle, and if you can guess it, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 other garments. But if you don't guess it, then you have to give me the 30 garments and the 30 garments. They looked around. They're like, 30 of us, one of him. Sounds like a fair deal to me. Let's gamble on this one. So he throws out this riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now, not in a hundred years would I have gotten that riddle. You're like, well, it's easy. I mean, it's the lion and the honey. Yeah, because you read the story. I mean, but the fact is, without us knowing the story, that was a, a nonsensical riddle. Who would have figured? I mean, how many times have you heard that uh, uh, honey was inside of the belly of a lion? That's dumb, right? Why would this whole exchange happen? We don't know the motive, but we know it was an ill-advised exchange and an ill-advised gambling deal that caused trouble for all parties involved. That's a little side note there, by the way. Just take that, take that and gnaw on it for a while. After three days, they were unable to explain the riddle. Now, this is the part that's going to get me in trouble, but I want to remind you that God said it, not me. Okay, y'all say, say it with me. It's not Jeff's fault. Come on. All right, don't blame me. This is what God's word says. Okay, here we go. After three days, they were unable to explain the riddle. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, persuade your husband to explain the riddle to us or we will burn you and your father's family to death. So there's an assumption that the Philistines were just innocent parties at the hands of Samson, but that's not true. Now remember, the beginning of the story, the Bible says that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord again, and so he gave them over to the Philistines for 40 years. The next verse tells us that God begins the redemption of that captivity to the Philistines, right? So the Philistines were not an innocent party. They were a vicious, vile party. We know this because we get a little glimpse into how they thought. They told this Timna woman, Timnanite, 
if you don't find out this riddle, we're going to burn you and burn your father and slaughter everything that you own. That was their, the life of Timnah, or of this woman, was not worth a few pieces of clothing. It kind of sounds familiar to our day, doesn't it? In our, in, our, in our economy, human life doesn't mean a lot. We will take a life over $5. We will take a life over being cut off in traffic. Don't believe me? Look at YouTube. Turn on your TikTok. You'll see people enraged over things that should not matter at all. It's the heart of mankind that is the problem. And it's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a God who gives us what is right and what is wrong. That's why we need transformation. That's why the greatest commandment is love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and being, and love your neighbor as well. Because God's way is different. And so you have this, this, these, these, these 30 men who uh, accuse this woman of robbing them. And so verse 16, here it is. So Samson's wife came to him weeping and said, you hate me. You don't love me. You told my people the riddle, but haven't explained it to me. She began to nag him. And if you go down just a few uh, verses later, verse 17, she wept the whole seven days of the feast. She nagged and nagged and nagged. There's two proverbs that you need to know here. This is the Bible. Better to live on the corner of a roof than in a house with a nagging wife. That's one proverb. The second proverb, I believe it's Proverbs 27. That one's 21, I believe. Proverbs 27 says this. It says, like a dripping faucet is a nagging wife, or is the words of a nagging wife. Now, before you get all upset at me, you could flip nagging anybody. Nagging wife or nagging husband, right? I told Shannon, honey, you don't have to remind me every six months to fix it. I will eventually, I will fix it. Y'all get that, right? Just, just give me a few years and it'll be done, right? The truth is, again, this is another side sermon. There's so much. The side sermon is this. You can nag, but it's not going to do one single bit except bring frustration to your conversation. Can I get a witness? Is there anybody in this room by show of hands that are like, you know what I really want? I really want a nagging wife or a nagging husband. Anybody? Anybody? No. Now, I'm not saying at all that you're not supposed to encourage your spouse to do stuff. I'm not, I'm not saying don't ever say it. I'm just saying there's a difference between a conversation and a nag, right? Big, big, big difference. Here's the result of the nagging, though. And you might be able to see it works. And it did work. But it didn't work in peace and harmony. It worked in confusion and ultimately death. There's a lesson in that for us. After three days, they were unable. So Samson, verse 16, Samson's wife came weeping and crying. You hate me. You don't love me. You told my people to really haven't explained to me. He said, look, I haven't even explained it to my father or mother. So why should I explain it to you? I kind of feel like that was one of those, woman, quit nagging me. I kind of feel like that's what he was doing, right? But after seven days, at the last moment he explained it to her because she had nagged him so much then she explained it to her people 
And when she did that, they came back and they explained the riddle. And here's the second phrase that you're not going to like. So he said to them, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer. Let that sink in for just a moment. In about 100 years, I don't think I'll ever say that phrase. If you hadn't plowed with my heifer. Number one, he was calling his wife a cow. So he wasn't super bright in the head, if you know what I mean, right? But really what he was saying was this. You were messing in an area that you shouldn't have been messing in. You were deceitful. You were unfair. You tricked me. When he said that, he said, you wouldn't know the riddle if you weren't messing with my cow. And then verse 19, and then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully. Once again, that same phraseology came powerfully on him. And he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men. So he went about 20 miles away and he killed 30 men, took their clothes, brought them back, and paid off the guys who tricked him into telling the story. Once again, God was at work even in his own brokenness. In a rage, Samson returned to his father's house and his wife was given to, the one, to one of the men who had accompanied him. Is that not the most confusing, messed up, blob of scripture you've ever read we're going to finish the rest of it next week because I don't want us to miss the overarching point here you have a choice you can live your life pursuing the lust of your flesh the lust of your eyes the pride of your possession the pride of your life and God can still use you. But just like Lonnie Busby, or excuse me, Lonnie Frisbee, just like Arthur Blessed, I mentioned the other day, just like um, the chaplain of Bourbon Street, y'all know who um, uh, Bob Harrington is? You ever heard his name? He was widely known in our country as the chaplain of Bourbon Street, he was an evangelist who loved Jesus. He would set up shop on Bourbon Street in one of the strip clubs and he would hold revival services. He was known throughout our country as a preacher who boldly preached the gospel. He debated Madeline Murray O'Hare. You remember she's the one who brought the, the lawsuit uh, which, which essentially got prayer completely out of schools. Some of y'all who are younger don't know that story yet, but, but it's, it's what happened. Uh, by the way, her ending was very tragic. Her ending was that she was kidnapped and then killed through the kidnapping. Horrible story. But this, this uh, chaplain of Bourbon Street won hundreds and thousands of people to the Lord. Worldwide fame. He preached all over the world. And yet his legacy is tarnished. Because even though God used him, he wasn't holy and he wasn't righteous. So the question is this. What are these? They are knives. What do knives do? They cut things. Which knife would you rather be? 
You'd rather be this one. I know there are some things you can do with this one, but here's the thing. Both of them will cut meat. Both of them will chop vegetables. You can use both of them in most applications. You can spread butter with this one, and you can spread butter with this one. But nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, you're going to choose this knife over this one. Why? Because it's sharp, and it's a much higher... This one is just a run-of-the-mill, old, cheap old knife. This one's an expensive quality knife. When you look back at the end of your life, are you going to be this or are you going to be this? I don't know about you, but I don't want my legacy to be tarnished because I couldn't control my eyes, my flesh, or my pride. For you, I would invite you to the same commitment. Now, the truth is, sometimes we, uh, sometimes we do what we don't want to do and we find ourselves in a position we don't want to be in. Just like David, man after God's own heart. Yet, God restored him, but it was never the same. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's what Paul told Timothy. And I think that's a word for us today. This morning, I want to invite you, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, to do so. The Bible says it's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of your works. You cannot earn God's forgiveness. The way that you can be saved, which means become a child of God, means rescued from the condemnation of your sin, the way that that happens is very simple. The Bible says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall or will be saved. And so, I'm going to tell you A, B, C. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you need forgiveness. B, believe. Believe not only that Jesus is the Son of God, but believe He is the sacrifice for your sin. Believe He is who He says He is. And then C, confess with your mouth. If you believe in your heart... If you confess with your mouth, the Bible says you will be saved. So whether you're in this room, whether you're watching by Facebook or TV, I want to invite you now to trust in Christ Jesus. But the second thing I want to do, I want to invite you to examine your life and ask yourself, are you a person that God could use as a sharp instrument? Are you just a dull knife that he, he can override you and use? He can use you either way. But why would you want to be anything but a person that God can use to its fullest extent, leaving a legacy of faith that's honoring? So I have a friend named Benny. Benny is just one of hundreds of thousands across the country, across the world, whose life of faith is evident. God has used him tremendously, and he's passing that on to his kids with no remorse no regret, no guilt. I want you to be like Benny, not like Samson. Amen? So this morning, that's the invitation. You see the communion uh, tables up here? As we are about to have our time of invitation for those two things, I want to invite you to communion. But we're going to do it a little bit differently today. Okay? So the Bible tells us that God desires mercy. 
not sacrifice. The Bible also tells us that if we're going to give a gift to God and we have something against our brother, we're to leave our gift at the altar, go make right with our brother or sister, and then come back and offer the gift. So today's communion is different in that we're not going to take this together in this room. I want you to think of somebody who is a believer because communion is for believers. I want you to think of somebody who's a believer, a follower of Jesus, somebody in your life that you have a strained relationship with. Could be a family member, it could be a, a neighbor, a friend. That's between you and the Lord, but I'm imagining it didn't take very long for somebody to come into your mind. Guys, listen, this is hard. I don't want to do this, but it's right. When we stand to have our time of invitation, I want you to come and grab two communion cups. One for you and one for the person you need to make right with. And then sometime between today and next Sunday, I want you to go to them and say, Hey, I don't think things are right between us. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we just make sure we're good? And then will you celebrate communion with me? You can tell them why, why you're doing it. And then next Sunday, I'm going to ask a few of you just to share briefly, what did that do? You know, the truth is, if you live long enough, and if you have any, any amount of friends, you're going to have ruffled feathers and broken relationships, right? And the truth is, the only real thing in life that's valuable is relationships. I'll trade all my money for relationships. Right? Some of y'all are like, well, here, I'll take your money. You can go have relationships. <laughs> but seriously, you know, right? So in just a moment, we're going to pray, we're going to stand. I want you to come and grab the cups, and I want you to keep them with you. And next week, let's have some testimonies of God reconciling us to someone else. Now, you might say, is this biblical? Is it okay? Well, go to the Scripture. We're not told where to do communion. We're not told how to do it. We're just told in the way that our heart should be when we do it and what we're doing by doing it. We are proclaiming His death until He comes. The first communion was how many people? Thirteen, right? So this is okay. It's outside of your boundaries, I know, but it's okay. It honors Jesus to be right with your brother or your sister. Father in heaven, I pray that this day you would help us. Lord, I know that, that it's a stretching kind of a day. But Father, we trust that your word is perfect. We trust that it's never wrong to be made right with another person. So, Father, give us the courage that it takes to do this. Give us the resolve not to put it off until the end of the week. May we do it sooner than later. And, Lord, I pray that you would show us something good. Lord, give us that satisfaction of knowing that we were obedient to you and that it was right. So, Father, I pray for anyone within the sound of my voice who's not yet a follower of Jesus. May today be the day they step across that line in faith and trust in you. And, Lord, we give you the rest of this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand? Let's sing together. As you're ready, come grab your, your cups and bring them back to your seat. If you want to kneel here and pray, you can do that. If you want somebody to pray with you, we'll do that as well. Let's just respond to him.